Thank you, improv team. Uh, this, uh, if you want to turn in your Bible, if you haven't already, as we already said, is from Matthew 25. Um, it's a fascinating uh, little parable, partly because of its context. And I, I think its immediate context will really help us understand part of what's going on here. This is a part of a, of a talk that Jesus gave a, a teaching known as the Olivet Discourse, uh, which sounds really fancy, right? The Olivet Discourse. You know what that means? Uh, he gave this talk. That's what a discourse is, right? This conversation. Uh, and he gave this uh, on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, and its timing is really interesting. This is part of the Passion Week. This happens after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so Jesus has been uh, ministering for roughly three years. He's been teaching. He's done, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to dismiss the kids. Oh, kids. Bye, kids. Kids, you can go off to kids' church. They figured it out by the time I dismissed them. So it's... Uh, Again, the word superfluous comes to mind. Um, this is uh, uh, probably the first day after that triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. And so Jesus has been traveling throughout the countryside. He spent an awful lot of time up in the region of Galilee, way up in north. Um, he's traveled down uh, through the central part of Israel. And now he's in the heart, the capital of Israel. Uh, and he's entered Jerusalem. And of course, we know what happens at the end of the Passion Week. And Jesus knows what's going to happen at the end of his Passion Week. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be sacrificed uh, for the sins of his people uh, and pay that price. But he's still engaged in teaching and ministering. And part of that is this Olivet Discourse. And so he has this, this teaching where he tells this story. It's really similar to a lot of stories that he's told. You know, I, we mentioned before this idea of a landowner who might leave his land, his possessions, in charge of some other people was really, really common in their world. This wasn't a, a you know, as Jesus begins to tell the story and says that there was this landowner who was about to go on a journey, nobody said, well, why would he do that? I mean, they saw this all the time. Maybe this landowner had other land. You know, maybe he was going to go visit some of his other properties. Maybe he was just going on vacation. We don't, it doesn't really matter. But this idea of these wealthy landowners who weren't even always present on their uh, estates wasn't at all uncommon. And so Jesus tells this, and this is why he uses these parables, these stories like this, because they resonated with people. And he says he, he goes away and he takes this money. And in our improv, it was bags of gold. In, in the context, it's talents. It's such an interesting word, talents. We'll, we'll get around to that. But, but this, this denomination of, of money, these talents, and he gives his servants some money. Why did he give uh, some of them more than others? Well, we don't know precisely but the story says it was according to their abilities, right? And so servant number one, who gets the five whole talents, uh, he was probably better gifted, he was a better investor maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but according to their abilities. And so this, this landowner gives the first servant five talents. And he gives the second servant two talents. And he gives the first servant one talent. One talent. 
And he explains to them, I want you to oversee my property while I'm gone. There's a really key word for this that is used frequently in the Bible. Uh, We have this same word in English. It's the word steward. He gives them a stewardship. He makes them stewards. When you're a steward, you're overseeing something that does not belong to you. That makes sense? So he hasn't really given them the money as if to gift it to them. He hasn't told them, hey, this is yours now. Everybody's really clear on the, on the concept that this is still the landowner's money. He just tells them, I'm giving you this as a stewardship. I want you to oversee this because I'm going to be gone. There are certain things that I can't do. What did he expect them to do? I mean, he suggests at the end of this that you could have just given it to a banker for deposit. Maybe that was an option. Maybe some shrewd trading in the marketplace was an option. Whatever, it seems clear that they have options. And so he gives these servants these talents, and then he goes away on his journey. In verse 19, Matthew 25, verse 19 says, After a long time, the master came and settled his accounts with him. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. I don't know how good you are with math, but that's double. He doubled his money. I thought that would be funnier. That's really obvious, right? You really don't have to be good at math to, to get the what's just happened. He has increased his money by 100%. That's good, isn't it? Interestingly, the master says the exact same thing. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then verse 22 says, He also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Take a moment. You do this work yourself. I did it earlier but you do this work yourself. Compare verse uh, 23 there to verse 21. What do you see? It's the exact same statement, isn't it? Isn't that great? I I love that. It's not as if the first servant comes and says, I, I, I doubled this. And then the second servant comes and the master says, well, that's great that you got me two extra talents. The other guy got me five extra though. You notice that? He recognizes and he gives the exact same feedback, which is to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he goes on to say, because you've been faithful with a few things here, I'm going to put you in charge of many things. 
Um, there's a little bit of a, a difference in Luke. Uh, Luke uh, has this similar teaching. I think it's a different setting. Uh, in Luke's account, it's while Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. It does not seem to be part of this Passion Week, and it does not seem to be part of the Olivet Discourse. But Jesus, uh, um, and, and this is fascinating, I think. Jesus, as he's approaching uh, the city of Jerusalem, tells a very, very similar parable. And in Luke's telling of it, um, Jesus goes on to say, well, because you earned me this number of, of talents back, uh, or this number of minas it is in Luke's, I'm going to put you in charge of that many cities. Isn't that fascinating? He says, I'll, I'll make you an overseer of, of X number of cities based on the amount that this servant had made. So there's this, this clear sort of a reward. But I think our improvisational players did a good job of something. And that was just expressing delight in the praise of their master. You pick up on that? I mean, what a great thing to hear, isn't it? Well done, good and faithful servant. When you've been given a, a task, when you've been given a responsibility, a stewardship, there is, is often this tension, I, I hope, you know, where, where we're often thinking, I, I hope this is going to please my boss, my master, the, the one for whom I'm doing this task. And it's such a, a relief, such a delight to hear, yeah, I'm pleased. I am pleased. And he says, well done. And then he rewards them on top of that. But then I think my favorite thing about his feedback to these first two servants is this. Enter into the joy of your master. Isn't that a beautiful statement? You know, in other words, he doesn't just say, yeah, you've done satisfactorily. And he says, I have joy. And I don't want to read too much between the lines here, but I think it's fairly evident that his joy is as a response to what has just been done by these servants. And he says, not only I'm joyful, but he says, I want you to enter into my joy. I want you to share in my joy. What specifically might that have meant? I don't know, he might, have, he might have thrown a banquet later where these servants were invited to sit at his table, which would have been a huge thing, you know, to eat with him, to, to share his food, to have a celebration together. He says, enter into my joy. Come along with me. Celebrate. Be joyful with me. And then we get to this poor third servant. <laughs> who says well I was I was uh, I knew you were a hard man verse 24 reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed and so I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground here you have what is yours <laughs> and I kind of feel for this guy this is, you know, on the one hand, a really safe investment, right? <laughs> this is an extremely conservative investment strategy, whereby you take on very little risk, 
You're just trying to protect that investment. But, I mean, it could be argued that an investment without any return whatsoever isn't really an investment. It's something different. It's digging a hole and putting a talent into the hole and just guarding it, sitting on it, hoarding it even, you know. And he just comes back to him and he says, here, you have what's yours. It's the exact same thing you gave me. Here it is. And his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. (laughs) You knew that I reap where I have not sown and I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is, frankly, a hard teaching. This is difficult, and it's difficult especially in the face of some of the other things that we've seen. You know, just a couple weeks ago, we looked at so much of what Jesus taught being very upside down from the rest of his culture. The whole, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first bit. And then, this seems to be somewhat different. This seems to be more like, well, the first will get more from the last, and will... But keep in mind, Jesus is teaching two very different principles here. And what he's teaching here is about stewardship. And I say that I think it's important to understand the context of where this is, to understand that Jesus will soon be put to death. And then he knows, I'm sure, that he is going to be raised back to life, that on the third day, because he's he's been prophesying that he's been explaining what precisely is going to happen the disciples at the time may not have understood that but jesus knew that this is what was going to happen that he'd die he'd be put into the tomb and then he'd rise again but then shortly thereafter he would ascend into heaven he's going to leave them for a time do you see who the the master who is getting ready to go on a journey is in this parable It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's God himself who has come in the incarnation, who has taken on full humanity, who has spent now this 33 years of his life and the last three ministering and teaching and serving and loving and pointing people to the kingdom of God, trying to get his people, Israel, to repent, to turn back to their God. He's been desperately engaged in this but he's also been training his disciples those followers of his certainly his inner circle but everyone who was following along he's been instructing them and training them because he knows he is about to go away for a time how long well interestingly did the landowner in the parable tell the servants how long he'd be gone No, he said, I'm going on a journey. Take care of my stuff while I'm gone. I'll be back when I'm back. (laughs) 
And Jesus likewise, you remember when Jesus ascends into heaven, his disciples say, hey, is the kingdom coming soon? And Jesus, in essence, says, not really any of your business. I'm just going away. I will be back. Take care of my stuff. Do you see how perfectly this parable, this teaching, this concept, this instruction fits into exactly where Jesus is in his ministry as he, the, the wealthy landowner, the Lord of the estate, is about to go away for a time and he's leaving his people with a stewardship. Our scripture reading this morning was from 1 Corinthians I'm not going to read this whole passage again. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the end of chapter 3, and he's, he's talking about no one boasting in men. Verse 21, 1 Corinthians 3, 21, let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So he says, you belong to Christ. One might even say, you are his property. And then chapter 4 says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ. You see what he's getting at here. You see the connection being made. All of us are servants of Christ and stewards, there's that word, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. It's this exact same principle, see? And Paul now writing not only to the nation of Israel, in fact, Paul is primarily writing in the context of this letter, 1 Corinthians, to Gentiles, to non-Jews, non-people from Israel, you know. But he uses this exact same concept, and he says, we're stewards. We belong to him. We have this stewardship. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm aware of anything, uh, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. And Paul says it's the, the landowner, the Lord of the manor. That's whose approval I am interested in. That's whose uh, joy that I want to enter. I think the principle from all of this is first and foremost, you are a steward. And I think it would be easy perhaps to make the mistake of, of taking that parable in Matthew and again thinking, well, he's really kind of teaching specifically to his, to his disciples or he's talking specifically to the nation of Israel, which is why I take you to 1 Corinthians to make sure we make the connection. This, this concept is for all of us. See, you are a steward. You are. You've been given, in other words, a stewardship. And just as in the parable, what you've been given in terms of talents, and, and I said earlier, it's so interesting that this word talents for a denomination of, of money 
is the same as our word for, you know, an ability or a gift or, or something that you're able to do, isn't it? Maybe it's about money, but maybe it's just about some of your other areas of giftedness. But the talents that you've been given are, are different from the talents that other people have been given. Nonetheless, they're yours. And just like in the parable, there's no distinction made between one is more important than another. Paul writes about this at length too. Where he says, and he's sort of scolding them in the letter of 1 Corinthians elsewhere. And he says, you're arguing about, well, my gift is more important than your gift. And he says, no, they're all important. You're all part of the body. God has knit together this body. You're all needed. You're all necessary. How dumb would it be for one part of the body to say to another part of the body, I don't need you. I can do without you. It's not true. And in the parable, the landowner doesn't try to, he doesn't say, I'm going to give you five talents because I really, really like you. And I'm only going to give you one talent because I don't like you so much and I think you're kind of dull-witted. He doesn't really say that. He does say according to their ability. But he doesn't try to give them a hierarchy in terms of, and I love, again, that his response to the two first servants is exactly the same. And just as a thought experiment, consider what would have happened if that third servant had taken the one talent, done the same thing with it, doubled it, and brought it back and said, here's another talent I strongly, strongly suspect that the landowner's response to that third servant would have been exactly the same. Well done, good and faithful servant. But the point is, you are a steward. I am a steward. We've been given a stewardship And I think another way to to look at this might be that God has invested in you. This is what God sort of, uh, or the landowner rather, does in the parable is he, he is sort of investing his own property with these servants. But there's something that goes along with that. His intent, the expectation of the landowner, and the expectation of your master, your God, is that you will invest what he has given you in order to serve him. See, you're a steward. We've all been given a stewardship. And the, the, the nature of that stewardship looks really different for all of us. That's fine. God, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, gave you precisely what he wanted to give you for the body. You are a steward. God has invested himself, he has invested his power into you. But the expectation for you and I as stewards is not to take that gift, not to take that investment and dig a figurative hole and just bury it and hoard it and keep it. That is not what a good steward does. What a good steward does is recognize this isn't even mine. This belongs to him. It's his. 
And it's been given to me as a stewardship in order that I should invest it, that I should use it for his glory, for his kingdom, for the betterment of what he is doing. What does that look like for you? Well, there's no magical formula, of course, because that stewardship is different for every one of us. I may not know precisely what it looks like for you. What I do know is this, that you are God's investment. You are God's steward. And you are to be using for God, for His work, His talents, the things that He has given you. Because when all is said and done, I hope, like me, you want to hear this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Hallelujah. And I just love that as we see in that parable, the Lord of the manor, the Lord of the estate, the landowner, gets joy from this and invites his stewards to share in his joy. And I'm not even convinced that's just an eternal state thing, this thing that happens after death when I go to heaven. I think now it's a joy to serve the Lord. We serve in our master's joy here and now even when we are actively engaged in using our stewardship, investing in our world, investing in lives, investing in relationships, investing in ministry. Some small ways, some big ways. We are never to try and compare, well, I don't think my stewardship is as as important as someone else's. We don't see that in the Bible. We see just the opposite. You don't need to worry about it. What you need to worry about is being a good and faithful servant who pleases their master. How often in your daily walk do you think about pleasing your master? How often do you take what's been given you and consider, that's really mine. I think I'll guard it and protect it. I think I'll dig a hole in the ground and just keep it there. Make sure it stays safe. Versus understanding, I've been given some of my master's stuff. And I want him to be happy with me. I want to be able to share in his joy. I want his approval. I want to hear when he returns, and he is returning. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You were faithful. You were good. Maybe it was just with a little bit, but you used it. You grew it. You were a good steward of it. This is the sort of investment strategy that our God is looking for from us. Not just digging a hole and burying what he's given us. But to be a steward who recognizes this isn't even my stuff. It's his stuff. And so I'm going to use it, invest it, grow it to the very best of my ability and share in my master's joy. Hallelujah. Our Father God, we praise you for your word.
Father, we thank you for being a good master. As we've looked at elsewhere, your burden is light. God, it is a joy to serve you. But God, may we be reminded in our lives that we're stewards. That frankly, it's all yours. When the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and left his disciples standing there, we want to be reminded that he didn't do that because he needed their help. What a privilege and a joy it was for him to leave his stuff, his ministry with them to have trained them this whole time. And God, we see now that we live in our faith in this same heritage of stewardship. You don't need us because you're weak. You're not looking for help because you, you require help. You choose to use us because you're a good and gracious master. And Father, we want to hear from you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share my joy. Thank you for what a privilege that is, God. Remind us. Convict us. God, it's possible some of us in this room have taken what you've made us a steward of and essentially buried it in a hole. We're sitting on it. Help us to take whatever you've given us and invest it, God. To use it, to put it to work for your honor and for your glory so that we might be approved by you. We thank you, God, for the salvation you've so richly given us. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to be good and faithful stewards with what you've now entrusted to us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.